If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, which is page 717 in our church Bibles, Mark chapter 11, and in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading from verse 27 to the end of the chapter there. If you're new or visiting, we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse, and so the reason why we're here is this is where we should be. We've taken a few breaks along the way, so... This is how things have been ordered. All right, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, page 717 in the church Bibles. They, this is Jesus and the 12, they arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. May he give us understanding of it. If you would, please just bow with me. Well, Father, it's good to be together with your people in this place. We have something to be thankful for, Lord, as you know. Josephina Hope was born this week, and so Zach and Sandra Matthias and Pat and Julia's grandparents are enjoying that, and we pray your blessing on that household as they enjoy the uh, gift of a child. We have other mothers here that are expecting soon, and we pray for your tender mercy over them as well. And Father, as we study the Bible together, we would simply ask that what we know not, you would please teach us, that what we have not, you would please give us, and what we are not, that you would please make us. Our time, Father, is in your hands. My need, as always, is, is too much for me. And we need your pity. We need your mercy. We need you to do what we can't do for ourselves. For Jesus' sake, we ask this, Father. Amen. Well, I think if we were to be honest this morning, you would agree that by nature... We do not like other people telling us what to do. By nature, we do not like it when people interfere in our lives, call for our attention, or even call for our submission. In fact, by nature, we would try and plan for a life or even some portion or some corner of our life where the likelihood of someone telling us what to do is either reduced or removed. Why is that the case? Well, because by nature, we do not like people telling us what to do. And not least of all in matters, spiritual. And one reason that might be is that this idea of autonomy, of self-rule, of of governing our own lives, that kind of like a 
rugged individualism that is so much a part of contemporary culture, I'm going to suggest to you, sometimes it's like a leaky sink which drips into Christianity, which becomes a puddle that many people jump into, and that puddle says this, authentic spirituality is a very personal matter, it is a very private matter, it's a very subjective matter, so at the end of the day, this person um, does spirituality their way, adding what they like, and then removing what they do not like. And if that is you, then I suspect in your reading of the Bible, assuming that you're honestly able to understand it, you have discovered that the God of the Bible is a God who actually defines spirituality, a God who established limits on what true spirituality is, and therein he is a God who exercises authority over spirituality, even, even delegates his authority. And one of the ways that we know that is that God puts a head on everything. Everything that God instituted, he puts a head. So there's a head in a family, a leader. There's a head in a marriage. And there's a head in the church, Jesus Christ. And of course, that same Jesus Christ is the one ultimate head over all things, which every other head must submit to, because now I'm quoting from Jesus. This is Matthew 28. All authority, headship, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying everything, everyone, everywhere is under my authority. But again, we're being honest this morning. By nature, we bristle at authority. By nature, we fight it. By nature, we seek to find the holes in our authorities. And when authority is exercised over us, we seek to find the holes in that. Why? Because we don't like a head, especially when it comes to spirituality. And so in our studies on Mark, we should not be surprised that we find that Jesus is actually interfering in people's spirituality. Why is he doing that? He's just trying to be a royal pain in the neck? No. Jesus is interfering because, first of all, he must. We've been learning, and Mark's been telling us very clearly that there's so much corruption in the religious establishment, and the leaders, they were so awful that they were causing people to become twice as much as a son and daughter of hell as they were. Jesus' words, not mine. And second, since he's the head, he has all authority. And he obligates himself to act because he knows what is true, he knows what is good, he knows what is right, and he knows what is needed. Therefore, when you read something in Mark's gospel, for example, chapter 8, the words of Jesus, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. A person might ask, Does Jesus have the authority to make that kind of a statement? How does he know that's true? Or who gave him the authority to say that? And now I say all this because the issue at hand in these verses has to do with authority. The struggle between the religious authorities and Jesus is a struggle on authority. To be even more accurate, it's spiritual authority. If you like Who's speaking for God here? That's a big question, isn't it? Who's speaking for God here? And in Mark's gospel, right from the jump, we find that the ministry of Jesus has been like a thorn in the side of these religious authorities. Listen to Calvin, what he wrote on this. Those who find themselves defeated by truth generally do all they can to reject its authority. That's good, isn't it? Those who find themselves defeated by truth generally do all they can to reject its authority. And you have that in the religious leaders. They tell lies about Jesus. They reconstruct his intentions. They actually try to say what his intentions are. However, in Jesus, they've met their match. Yet, instead of joining his team, 
they do everything they can to reject his authority, even to the point of getting rid of him, can you believe it? By his murder. And when it comes to authority, even on a human level, whether in families, in churches, or in marriages, this idea of who said you could say that? Who said you could do that? But what authority are you doing that is one of the main struggles in relationships. It's a constant. It shouldn't be, but because we are so fallen, it is. Therefore, Mark, the gospel writer, right from the beginning of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, he lays down this thesis statement to underpin the authority of Jesus. This is what he says. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, Mark says, this is what I'm writing. This is good news, the big three. Good news about Jesus, who's the Son of God. So instead of Mark saying, hey, you need to trust me on this one. Jesus is God. He has all authority. Trust me. He doesn't do that. He begins right from the beginning with God's word. He quotes from Isaiah and Malachi, a prediction concerning Jesus. And then right after that, he begins to systematically record true history, which is building the argument properly, revealing that Jesus Christ has all authority. I'm going to say that again. Systematically, Mark is recording for us true history, which is going to build the argument properly, revealing that Jesus has all authority. For example, chapter 1, verse 27. The people said that the teaching that they were hearing from Jesus, these new lessons, they had never heard it before. And he was teaching with such authority. And Jesus reveals his authority by commanding unclean spirits to obey him, and they do. Chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus has a nighttime heal-a-thon. Many people with all kinds of diseases healed. Chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. And he heals a paralytic just to independ the fact that he has authority to forgive sins. Chapter 2, verse 13, he calls Levi, that crooked tax collector. Oh, I sound like the president, don't I? But he was a crooked tax collector. And holy moly, when Jesus called him, Levi came. Chapter 3, he calls a team. The team comes. Chapter 5, dead girl raised to life, sick woman back to health. Chapter 6, 7, 8, thousands fed by his hand with a little bucket of food. He walks on water. He calms the storm. Here's the point. There is no one like Jesus. Jesus is incomparable. Jesus has authority over people. He has authority over death. He has authority over sickness. Think about this one. Jesus has authority over food. Weather and words, all authority. And Jesus is recorded in 8, 9, and 10 saying that he has authority to give up his life and to take it back again. And he tells his followers this. Now let's think here. Who talks like that? Either you're a nut, C.S. Lewis, or you're king and savior. So what Mark does then is he paints a vivid picture telling us all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. And the one authority in his life, listen carefully, was Jesus' voluntary submission and that perfect harmony of Father and Son and Spirit where he does the Father's will in the power of the Spirit. Which means at least this. Jesus Christ, who has all authority, ties his authority to the Father. That's important. Listen to your Bible. John chapter 5, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you. So he's not quoting anyone here. I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless he sees the father doing it. He does what the father does in the same way the father does it. Next verse. I can do nothing by my own initiative. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because, listen carefully, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, did you listen to that? Jesus, in his humanity, is not interested in his personal desires, in his personal opinions, are his will. That's what he's saying there. In his humanity, I'm going to set myself aside. I'm just going to do what the Father would like. Because he has so much confidence that his Father's words are so right and that they're so clear, quoting Jesus, I seek not my own will. That's incredible. That's incredible, incredible because by nature, we can't wait to tell others our opinions. We can't not wait to tell others what we're thinking. And by nature, we'll freak out at times if people don't bow to our opinions. But Jesus is so tied to the Father in his humanity, I do not seek my own will, but my Father's will. And as a result of that, he rejected the Jewish authorities. He never consulted with them because they were apostate. They had defected from God's true intention. Jesus understands that. Were they religious? Sure. Externally, were they nailing it all down? Sure. But that's easy, isn't it? I mean, externally, that's a pretty easy game to play. But the one who knows all things, he knows that they don't know him. He knows they don't represent him. He knows they do not worship him because of the religious authorities who will not be told what to do. They had created a God of their own personal taste. Why? Because they sought their own wills. They sought their own wills. In fact, Jesus just says it flat out. You have let go of the commands of God, right? You have removed yourself from God's authority. If you're like, you've closed your Bibles. You're self-governing now, guys, and you're holding on to human traditions. And he continues, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. In other words, in all your religious activity, in all your so-called spirituality, you are simply paying homage to yourself. That is all that you're doing. You're worshiping yourself under the disguise of temple worship. And a word, maybe a phrase, they were illegitimate. Now, if you're tracking with me, that's why Jesus goes into the temple. Verse 12, do you see it there? And he starts tipping tables and he starts teaching things that the crowds had never heard before. And by Jesus doing that, what he's saying is this, all that stuff going on, it is all wrong. It is all wrong and it is not accepted. In reaction, because they can't stand to be told that they're wrong, these leaders, verse 27, if your Bible's open, it's the big three, isn't it? The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. In other words, this was a representative of the Sanhedrin. Think here, the supreme ruling council, right? You can't have any more authority than these guys. Jesus then arrives. You see that there? Matthew tells us that he was walking, but he was also teaching. So Jesus is walking. The crowds are coming. They're listening to his teaching. The Sanhedrin arrive. Two questions. Verse 28. This is what they want to know. By what authority are you doing these things? It's, if you're a parent, it's, it's easy, right? You go home and let's say your wife comes home and she sees the kids doing something. and, they, and you, Who said that you could do that, right? You know this, but what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do this? Because after all, they were the ones who had, quote, authorization. They had the schooling. They had the background. They had seniority. They had been there a lot longer than Jesus. Jesus had none of this. He was a carpenter. The word on the street about Jesus was his birth might have been like illegitimate. 
He was a pseudo-rabbi. And Jesus goes into the temple and he does things which to them was subversive. Consequently, the Sanhedrin want to know who gave Jesus their permission. And the better word there is power. Because that's the sense of the Greek word. It's exosiha. Who gave you that power to tip tables and teach the things that you're teaching in the temple? Now, the assumption they had, had seems to be that they would kind of put their wooden heads together and trap Jesus with two good questions. That's what they wanted to do. However, bits and pieces of the group, you know, they should have known better. They've tried this before. So you think they would have known better or maybe come at Jesus in a different direction. The devil, though, is not very creative. Anyway, Jesus, in his response, um, he gives a rabbinic practice response, which means by practice, the rabbis, when asked a question, they would typically respond with another question. And the reason why they did that was one for clarity, right? They want to capture a bit more clarity from the question so that they could answer it more correctly. Okay, that might be true there, but it's also true that in the case of Jesus Christ, a lot of times he would ask a question to their questions because he wanted to expose their actual motive. Why are you asking me that question? Are you asking me that question because you want to know? Or are you asking me that question because you, know, you want to hurt me? You want to corner me? That was the case here. Now what I would suggest to you is that in their minds, Jesus had two options in his answer. Option number one, either Jesus said, okay, my conduct was bad, unauthorized, I turn myself in. Exposes himself to the Sanhedrin. Option two, he would claim his conduct was authorized by God, which meant that he was greater than Sanhedrin. The same thing happens. Sanhedrin jump on Jesus and take him away. So in their minds, he's trapped. But not so fast. We're talking about the Son of God. Verse 29, do you see it there? I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from human origin? Amen. Tell me. Now, what I want you to know is when you see the phrase, answer me in verse 29, and then the phrase, tell me in verse 30, you should know that Jesus is not asking this question nicely. It's hard to see in the English. The best hint is the exclamation point. Jesus' demand here is bordering on disrespect. Answer me. I want you to think here of a justified angry mother. Tell me. Think here of a justified angry father. That's the first thing. And secondly, you should be asking yourself, okay, why is Jesus using John the Baptist? John the Baptist, excuse me. Is he just reaching here? Is this random? It's not. And I want you to think with me. When you read the Gospels, especially John's gospel, what you're going to notice is that the religious leaders had a fixation on Jesus, but they also had a fixation on John the Baptist. John the Baptist arrives on the scene, strange clothes, strange diet, strange location, strange man. But the crowds would just flock to listen to him teach, and they couldn't understand this. Because if you have the crowds in the minds of these guys, then you have the whole thing. And you should know from the whole gospel record, there was a constant problem with these men of jealousy. They were jealous of Jesus, and they were jealous of John. The crowds were saying nice things to them. The crowds were gathering around them. Hence that fixation. Because jealousy does that. Therefore, true to form, the religious establishment, they just keep pounding John. John, who are you? John, who are you? Who is this guy who's setting the desert on fire? So Mark excuse me, John writes, John the Apostle, writing about John the Baptizer, he writes, this was John's testimony. 
when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They said, well, then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to the people who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Which is always a dangerous question, isn't it? (laughs) What do you say about yourself? Well, give me a few hours and I'll tell you. Anyway, verse 23, John says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice calling out, preparing the way for the Lord. But there's a guy among us now whose shoes I'm not even worthy to tie. In other words, what John was saying is that what the Old Testament was predicting about this Messiah, that's Jesus. And Jesus is far greater than me. John says, Jesus is far greater than me. And so the crowds understood that John was a prophet sent by God, no question in their minds, listen to John. And that is why Jesus asked this question in light of this authority question. Verse 30, John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. You see, Jesus, because he does everything well, he thought through the implications of his question. No matter what answer that they would give. And right away, you see that there in the Bible, they're not interested in giving a truthful answer, right? Verse 31, they're not going to have a discussion based on truth. But we'll get to that in a minute. Here's the clever little pickle that Jesus put them in. If the religious authorities admit that John's authority is from heaven, then as they connect the dots of John's ministry, what it's going to do, it's going to be an arrow pointing to Jesus. John himself said Jesus was greater than him. Jesus was going to succeed him because Jesus and not John was the Messiah. Jesus is God's king in God's world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now the other end of that stick If they would admit, verse 32, that John's baptism was from men, they would put themselves in direct opposition to the people who believed that John was a prophet sent by God. So in their minds, they're cornered. Now listen, they do not have to be cornered. They can let the truth set them free. But they are not interested in the truth. Now, let's not be too hard on them. A, because they're human which means B, they're like us. And I think we all would agree that leadership at any level can be very, very difficult, particularly in religious life or in the life of the church. People often expect perfection. We give what we have in Christ's name. A leader doesn't want to upset the cart. A leader would like to remain in their position. So don't rock the boat. If you do, they might throw you off the boat. That's real. We'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't admit that. Nevertheless, here, the authority they enjoy is vested in a very weird relationship with the people. And I want you to think with me. Here's how I played this in my mind. You have leaders who do not fear God. I mean, that's obvious. But verse 32, who do they fear? They fear the people. And yet, at the same time, they like to rule over the people. They like to deceive the people. They actually like to take money from the people, steal from the the people. That's weird. And so, you have this kind of give and take game, which is not based on truth, but essentially based on a mood. They fear the people. And at times, you read the gospel, the people feared them. That's strange. 
That's very strange. But we're being honest this morning. Doesn't that happen in human relationships? Doesn't moods have the potential to, to lead a marriage, to, to lead a friendship, and forgive me, even leave a church? You go home, baby, what's wrong? There's nothing really wrong, but there's in that mood. You go home, honey, what's wrong? There's nothing really wrong, but he's in that mood. I want to help you, but this is not rational. By chance, two good things happened to me this week. One, as I read C.S. Lewis, listen to what he says about moods. He says, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had the same mood. And Christianity looked terribly probable to me. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That's why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can neither be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. He's so honest. This is what he says. He goes, here's some advice. Step one, recognize the fact that your moods change. Two, make sure that if you have one once accepted Christianity, then you take some of its main doctrines and you set them before your mind deliberately sometime almost every day. That's why daily prayers. That's why Bible readings. That's why church going is so necessary and such a part of the Christian life. Terribly honest. Terribly honest. So what we have here in these leaders is expediency, which is ruling over truth. They want peace at any cost. They want their power before the truth, before principle. What they're being is they're being pragmatic. Will our answer keep us at peace with the people? And will our answer keep us in a position of authority? Versus being principled. Is our answer true? Is our answer true? In other words, when the Sanhedrin got into their little holy huddle, by the way, isn't that funny to even think about? You have a bunch of grown men, you know, I think of here of like the Peanuts cartoon, and they, they're all like, looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus, holy cow. You know, they're not saying, hey guys, what's the right thing to do here? What is true here? Let's give them a true answer. If they gave Jesus a true answer, their answer would demand their obedience to the Lordship of Christ. So essentially what they do, and we know the story here, they're playing politics with Jesus. And in their minds, they just simply pander to the crowds. That's all they're doing. Barkley, they give the lamest of all lame answers. You see it there. We don't know. We don't know. Yes, you do. Yes, you do, but you're, you're lying. You're lying. You're not telling the truth. So it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. But it's even more than that because what they're doing is they're revealing by nature what human beings thirst for. We thirst for power and we thirst for peace. Think it out. They do not want to lose their position of power and give it to Jesus by saying, you know what, John's baptism is from heaven. And you know what, because John said that you were greater than him, here's the keys to the temple. It's all yours. We bow to your authority. They don't want that. Also, they don't want to have the crowds, the majority, mad at them. And their other answer, if they would have said, you know what, John's baptism is bunk. He's not a prophet. He's just a crazy man in the desert. By the way, that's what they actually thought. But they wouldn't say that. Why wouldn't they say that? Power and peace. The star of Jesus is on the rise. The crowds begin to lean towards him. He's in Jerusalem now. 
He could take away all our power and he could take away all our peace. That is why the questions are asked. That's why they ask their question and that is why Jesus asked his question. And isn't it interesting that nobody gives an answer? Jesus' non-response is justified. Here is why. A statement without support merits a denial without reason. That is a common rule in logic. A statement without support merits a denial without reason. Verse 34, he does not answer their question. Okay, there you have it. We're almost done. Is there any application for us here? Right? How are we going to think about this? We're about ready to go to lunch or wherever we are as we go and do lots of nice things, which I hope we're all able to do. How do you take this and apply it in some reasonable way? Or is this just like information? Well, no, no, it's much more than information. Well, how do you know that? Because the Bible says that all Scripture is given to correct us, to reprove us, to train us in righteousness, and all Scripture confronts us with the claim and authority of Jesus Christ. And you see, the issue here for all of us in relationship to Jesus, it is an authority issue, an authority issue. And it may involve our minds and our thinking. It might involve our morals and how we live. It might involve our words and how we speak or the decisions we make daily, financially. All of them, Jesus says, is under his authority. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus the ultimate authority over our lips and our life? And we were honest enough to begin by saying, by nature, we do not like people telling us what to do. We do not. Least of all, someone like Jesus who calls for our obedience, even demands our obedience. So we want to be spiritual, but we're going to be spiritual our own way. And we're going to let our spirituality serve our own mind, and if you would please, our own agendas, and our own lifestyle. So this is what I believe. This is what I hold to. This is what I think. And I don't want anyone interfering with it at all. Not a church. And definitely not Jesus. This is what I've always done. This is my traditional view. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus Christ in love. And he just bangs into all that. He just bangs into all that. He turns everything upside down. And he takes what men and women value and he turns it on its head. So he says, if you want to be first, that's great. You're going to need to be last. If you want to save your life, super. You're going to have to lose it for the gospel. And then he says nice things like, don't worry about your life. Put that on the back burner. Put God's kingdom at the top of your list. And then he says even nicer things. By the way, you're never going to be good enough for God. You know that list that I gave you? You're never going to be able to keep that the way I need you to keep it. That's why I'm coming. I'm coming to rescue you from your open rebellion to my authority. That's how much I love you. (sighs) Okay, Jesus, then who are you? Well, I'm the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Like Jesus, all authority? Like all, all authority? Yes, all authority. And by the way, go make disciples. Jesus, that sounds a lot, a whole like, a lot, whole lot like my whole life, all of my words, all of my deeds, all of my plans, and every age and stage are entirely under your authority. Jesus, I feel like your slave. Yeah, but you're also my child. Now, loved ones, and you think about this, and if you're going to be honest this morning, and we've been pretty honest so far, 
We always need to pray for each other. And we always need to pray for the church, global, local, that we don't fall foul of dripping to that notion that Christianity is only about making things better. It's going to make your family better. It's going to make your finances better. It's going to make your future better. Because Jesus tells us right from the beginning that the gospel can get in the way of all that. It can get in the way of all that. Really? Yes. Just read your Bible and be honest. And so since Jesus says all authority, his words, not mine, have been given to me, he says go and make disciples. It demands a pretty simple question. Have we? We will never make disciples until we honestly take to heart that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. And those moments when we become obedient and courageous and humble enough to tell people that they need to meet Jesus Christ, we will know that we are submitting to the authority of Christ. And for those minutes and for those months when we are obedient and courageous and humble enough to set aside our personality and our personal plans in order to take time to build relationships with other people, that by lip, by life, by a nice meal, by a nice walk, we tell them, hard in, you need to meet Jesus Christ. When we do that, we will know we are submitting to the authority of Christ. If you want to speak of spirituality, if you want to speak of morality, there it is. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Loved ones, all these religious leaders wanted was to keep their power and enjoy their peace, which came with their power. And Jesus said, no. And he said, I've come to wreck it. Why? Because he has all authority. And in his authority, he has come to put them away so that people can finally be rescued. This is not an ego issue with Jesus. This is a salvation issue. People are being hurt. People are being misled. And people are dying without a savior. I have all authority. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. That's Jesus. Do you want power and peace? I do. Here's some ways we might think we can get power and peace. I'm going to give God-like allegiance and devotion to money. I'm going to let money set the paces in my home. Maybe because I'm a little afraid. Maybe because I'm just a little mangled up. I'm going to store up heavily. I'm going to build big barns. Hold my resources for whatever day I'm aiming. And then I'm going to have peace. And then I'm going to have power. But I can promise you that Jesus Christ did not give us money to make us feel safe. Money is dead. It, can, it cannot quiet the soul. It can only numb it. Or how about intellectual assent? I'm going to be the smartest one. I'm going to study hard, train hard, smartest guy in the room to capture the position of power. Then I'll be at the top of the heap. No one will be able to mess with me. Finally, power and personal peace. Or how about being consumed with external beauty? Power, peace. Or even we look at others in society, at work, in the church, and they seem like powerful people, so I'm going to connect myself with them, and I figure that if I connect with them, because they're powerful, then some of that power I can rub off on me, and then I may know peace. And I'm not reaching there. That was the Herodians and the Pharisees. They hated each other. 
But they connect to each other and make a plan to kill Jesus so they could keep their peace and keep their power. Or you want peace and power so your tongues become an unholy weapon. I read that in my, if you're reading through Bible Gateway, through the Bible in a year, you read through the Psalms. That was the Old Testament reading. Psalm 52, Doag the Edomite, he grew strong, powerful, by destroying others. My God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? This is us by nature. Well, we're going to cast ourselves on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to remind ourselves where true and lasting peace and power may only come from. And then we're going to tell ourselves the story again that the most powerful event in all of human history which appeared like the the most pitiful event in all of human history, the death of Christ on the cross, that is the key to our power and to our peace. Who says? By what authority can you say that, Joe? Because you know what? Sometimes I don't have enough and it really scares me. And sometimes I feel like a real big loser and I don't know what to do and now you tell me this Jesus stuff. What am I going to do? Listen. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. John 14.27. Jesus' words, peace I leave with you. I'm not going to give it as the world gives it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And don't be afraid. Who says that? Jesus? Who is he? Well, he's the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He can be trusted. He can be trusted. Let's pray together. If those men who will be serving communion, if you would come forward, please. Father, as we get prepared both externally and internally, for the table. Let us cherish Jesus Christ this morning. Let us enjoy his power and his peace and give us grace to apply both unwaveringly in the course of our days as long as you allow us to live. For Jesus' sake, we would ask these things. Amen.